This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This one actually comes to you from a YouTube comment. So thanks, guys, for commenting, keeping involved. And this is basically something that we've kind of touched on periodically throughout the history of the cast but we've never actually done a full deep dive episode into what goes into it for both of us and that's basically the two types of specking uh the pump and dump which is you know blatant market manipulation compared to the slow burn basically waiting for player driven demand organic demand to kind of lead your spec to where you think it's going to go and what goes into that for each of us and why we prefer which way we do so without further ado let's get started so the majority of what i do is i operate on uh, on the slow burn kind of thing uh, side of things um, i like to just take my time overall and operate on a longer timeline overall it allows me to be fairly methodical with my specs i get to watch prices for longer i get to look at overall usage stats and stock of uh, cards over time and that's favorable to me because i don't like just being kind of frantic about the way i operate uh, within this space um like to me it just feels like i'm looking for you know in in, uh, the stock market parlance the rope you know i just want something that's just going to be uh, even keel over time and i can expect and predict growth uh, swing trading or day trading uh, isn't really my style uh, and it doesn't really have to do much with market percentages and what I can make on it it's just it feels like it's so much more involved and just too much for me to integrate into my day-to-day that's fair I, I think the nice thing too about the slow burn is you're less reliant on because like i i like the pump and dump i'll Mm -hmm. talk about it all the time you know some great examples have been picks throughout my picks throughout the history of the cast but i also do engage in the slow burn hello sarkin's unsealing um the thing i like about the slow burn is it's a lot easier like you said to play the long game to just buy a bunch of a card stick it in a box and forget about it yeah now is there like for me, if I see something that I think is underpriced and, you know, example of a pump and dump that's recent, actually, was a little bit ago, I picked foil planar collapse in the cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to cash out for cost basis to Card Kingdom at $40 each. Everything I bought, I bought at 20 or less with one exception. And that's because knowing the way that some of these things are set up. So the thing about pump and dumping for me is you have to know the method Mm -hmm. uh and your method it seems like is kind of a fire and forget type deal with a slow burn yep just pick it and check it periodically let you know your bots run what programs they do to see like all right who's buying what for what so i know that card kingdom's buy price is based on an algorithm and that part of that is triggered by tcg sales so i did actually buy one for sixty dollars so that it showed last sold on TCG Player when you would log in for foil yep. was sixty dollars, because you need that for Card Kingdom to move the buy price. And after I that happened, I was able to buy listed Card Kingdom for forty each, 
and I have you know a bunch of extras left over. Well, today we're about to record, and I check the price on foil planer collapse on TCG player. Guess what TCG low is? Forty bucks. So the way you get your money with your pump and dumps is capitalizing on FOMO. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of people don't necessarily go as in-depth to looking at liquidity, movement, stock levels, everything. They see it on MTG stocks as a high mover, and they immediately just go for it. Just absolute FOMO. And one of the bad things about that is sometimes you can't get it to trigger. Uh, You know, one of the other examples I'll touch on later when I start talking about more of the bad aspects of the pump and dump. Uh, You may just be stuck with a bunch of a card that all of a sudden there's not that organic demand. Or you have to wait for just market forces to just carry it on your own and you're stuck, you know, holding the bag with all these cards. Um, Uh, Semporal Trespass. Yeah, we um, example. When we, we were part of the uh, MTG Finance subreddit, uh, we, as a group, talked about a lot of cards. We wanted to see what st- MTG stocks manipulation actually looked like and can do. Because there's a lot of talk in the subreddit about that. It's like, oh, FOMO triggers once it happens. It's like, okay, let's pick a good card yeah. that'll see play an EDH and see what actually happens. And so a number of people in the MTG Finance Discord at that point in time bought into Temporal Trespass. It hit stocks for like two or three days, and then nothing. We couldn't yep. We couldn't move. It was years later. We were just sitting there with Temporal Trespasses. And like we predicted, it did go up in time, but it became a slow burn. We couldn't pump and dump it. Um, and this is something I wanted to mention earlier. It's a good time now. Again, same Discord, uh, the MTG Finance subreddit Discord. Um, the Aether Revolt... Uh, standard event that Star City held. It was the first release weekend. People were basically holding their breath on what was going to happen. And that was the event that Green Black Constrictor broke out. So we targeted Walking Ballista and Rishgar Pima's Renegade and Glint Sleeve Siphoner. And we yep. were able to buy in quantity Glint Sleeve Siphoners uh, you know, between bulk and 25 cents and a week or two later just out them into the open market to buy lots, etc. For, uh, for, for profit. So that was a pump and dump based on market forces being tournament play. It's happened a couple of times. Um, it was a lot more easy to predict with Pro Tours when we had those. But now yeah. that Star City is holding or was holding standard events on release weekends, right? They weren't doing pre-release. You can't do that. So release weekends, Yeah. Uh, a lot of the market just kind of holds its breath to see what's going to happen. And if you operate quickly in that space, you can basically pump and dump uh, day two specs back into the market on Monday or Tuesday. I, one of my favorite examples was one of the Star City Legacy events where High Tide won. And throughout the top eight, you could arbitrage from eBay to Star City and back. Yep. Just copies of Candelabra because they went from like 300 to 1200 over the course of the top eight of that event. Like it was wild. Um, you know, what, what, when you do a slow burn, what's yep. one of your biggest fears? Like what's, what's the worst case scenario? You buy a thousand of this card. Yep. What's worst case for you? Um, so uh, there's actually two fail- failure cases. One is I buy a card at bulk, uh, Wake Root Elemental is something like that, shape and new from years uh, prior, and I buy a card at bulk and or maybe a little bit above bulk, and I sell it at a, at a small loss. Um, another example would I'm trying to think, uh, Wild Defiance. Yeah, Wild Defiance. Mm-hmm. I bought foils when they were super low at the Infect Pro Tour uh, years yep. and years and years ago. And my expectation was that I would slow burn those because the deck would be popular in the format. 
and I was uh, correct with that, but I didn't get enough of them out at uh, in time, so I made a profit overall. But the rest of them will now sit in a spec box at such a price that I'm not going to... They're all going to be negatives at this point because a better card was printed. Shaper Sanctuary. Shaper Sanctuary, exactly, and Ixalan. So I have Wild Defiances in foil for like a, somewhere between 75 cents and $2 that I'm sitting on, and I get out what I can, and the rest are just dead specs. I think I play one in an EDH deck because I had a bunch. Um, that's kind of it. I, I don't really subscribe to the there are no bad specs, only longer timelines in regards to stuff like this because th something like that exactly happens. Something yeah. new or better that replaces it gets printed or the deck falls out. You know, say, you, um, I was lucky with Deathrite Shamans. I was picking as many of those up as I could after the modern ban because players up here weren't playing Legacy. I got yeah. out of them before the Legacy ban. If I didn't, then I actually would be sitting in a negative across the board for all of them because they tanked so far below their minimum price point in their entry to standard that the entire yeah. spec would have been a loss. But at the same time, I'm not the kind of person that throws oftentimes hundreds of dollars at a singular spec. So my losses overall are fairly low. Um, there's a, a quote that was tossed into our Discord a couple of days ago. Um, I'm not turning pennies into nickels the quote is i'm actually turning dimes into dollars so the rest of the specs that i sit on for slow burn make up for my losses like that um something i had a question about actually is similar to that statement the if you're looking to pump and dump or you're looking to sell into fomo you have a small window to do it um how do the margins kind of react to that so it, it kind of depends now good way of looking at it is basically the reserve list divide. Uh, I think the reserve list is the one example where there are no bad specs, only longer timelines. Yep. But with anything non-reserve list, what you're looking at is it kind of varies by card. So in a card like Planar Collapse, for example, that's an EDH card at this point. That's not a real card. You know, it's, it's not going to see play in Legacy or Vintage or, you know, if it were play... If it were of a modern era, it wouldn't see play in modern. Like, it's just not going to exist like that ever. So when you're looking at it, it's basically like, okay, what I do is I buy quantity. And in this case, it was the 24 copies at the time that were on TCG player that were 25 or less. Mm -hmm. uh, I assume I'm getting half of those. Because they're going to check, see that it's sold out, cancel the order, and relist. Yep. I'm looking at you, Boople Snoot, with your copy for $150 that you canceled on me. I'm not holding a grudge. Anyways, uh, at that point, once I have the next day hits and you see it on MTG stocks, that's when I start combing buy lists. Because I don't necessarily want to sell them all on Facebook. I will, yep. but I want to know my worst case scenario. Worst case scenario, where am I buy listing this to for what amount? Excuse me. And that's where things like Star City, your card kingdoms, and your Abus come in handy because they don't penalize you for saying you're sending 20 of a card and you only send in 12. They don't, you know, take a percentage or something because, oh, you filled out your buy list wrong. No, they just honor however many you've sent. So I'll lock in at a price that I like, worst case, 
And if the order just sits there and gets canceled because I never send it in, great. Fine. Yeah. In fact, I have a planar collapse sell order that was canceled for 24 copies at 25 each. And obviously that is not what happened there. So that's okay. And on a good day, rather than having to buy a list, I will sell an amount of those on TCG Player. Uh, and that's where especially the buying one copy at an inflated price comes in handy because once vendors start to log into TCG Player and they see, oh, a copy sold for $60, mm-hmm. all right, I want to go above that yep, because yep. this card's trending up. So they start to list a little bit higher, and that's where you can get in your better margins. Um, typically on FOMO, you're looking at about a 40% margin on some of the older foils, on reserve lists, stuff like that. It's just based on how much volume you want to go for. Okay. Um, example, prime example of no bad specs, just longer timeline. Uh, I had a couple hundred copies of Grim Feast. Looking at my TCG order history, the most I paid for an English copy was $1.55. And that was in April of 2018. Um, so this was during the first big, like, reserved list boom. And you can see, if you look at the stocks graph, we got up to $3 low. I did not think, like, I thought, eh, maybe I'll get out of them now and I'll trigger something on Card Kingdom. Didn't happen until last year uh, when I was able to buy list those for about 5 to $8 yep. each. Um, which, you know, when you're going reserve list, and I think this is the same for your slow burn, these rules do not apply. It's it's a completely separate type of MTG finance than just traditional speculation at that point. Yeah, you, for me, I just kind of pick my margin when I'm ready to exit. Yeah. Um, so I sat on Sunbird's invocation forever. You know, the you know the other meme that we we have here. Yeah. And I watched it sawtooth up and down and up and down and you know every couple of months when I got ready to sell. I wasn't quite happy enough with the price. It was in another product, so I just had to sit down and take my time. Um, something else like Kozilek, not Butcher of Truths, The Great Distortion, is a card yeah. that I'm fine sitting on in indefinitely. Um, I sold a couple out just to even out a buy list order to Card Kingdom, just to put it over a certain threshold because yeah. I wanted to extract a certain amount. After that, I'll just sit on the rest, and I'm happy to, to do that because my my entry point was so low. What's the margin you typically look for? Like what percentage, like baseline? Yeah. You know, I'm generally happy with this amount. Uh, it, d- it depends on the price, in all honesty, okay. what my entry point was. Uh, I'm trying to think. Mm, I don't think I have a lot of specs that I've picked up for more than 4 to $5 at a time. And at that point, I'm fine looking for a, like, 40 to 50% margin on that. Yeah. So selling for 6 to $8, basically. I'm perfectly fine with anything that I bought in large quantity. So cycling back to Wake Root Elemental, Shape Anew, etc. Uh, time, I can't even remember the blue-white wrath from um, the new Return Supreme Verdict? Hmm? Supreme Verdict? No, Time something or other from... Oh, Time Wipe. Yeah, that. Like, I have... A, I, I bought a, an entire brick. I bought out the Gaming Co. on TCG Player nice. one time. And so I've got yeah. 100 and some odd. I'll take... That was a bulk buy, right? So I bought yeah. all of those for, like, dirt. 
I'll take 30% on that, which is three cents each. The margin seat, the percentile seems ridiculous, 30%, right? But yeah, it's three cents each. So that's, to me, that, that that's why it's kind of an interesting question. So like, uh, because I span the gamut of a couple of copies or a lot of copies for, for certain things. Um, I try not to go too overboard with specs. I don't want a lot of bricks because they take up a lot of space and oftentimes it's difficult to get out of everything at once. I still have some number of Sunbirds and vocations that i got to wait for ABU to reload their buy price. Yeah. And that's kind of a, a lesson learned and it's an important lesson to learn to somebody who does this where you're going to have to spread love across multiple vendors, but if you buy bricks, it's going to be difficult to do that across multiple vendors because these aren't cards that will sell at a, a very high velocity on TCG player. You know, I'm not gonna li- I'm not gonna list my brick of wake root elementals if it all of a sudden starts to climb and have them all out in a week. It's just not how it's going to work. So I'll take what looks to be a larger margin, but a smaller number overall on those cards, just to churn the space, just to reclaim some of the lost cost. So in reality, I'm kind of fine taking like I'd say 20% is my floor. Yeah. Uh, but that means different things depending on uh, the spec overall. If I really believe in something and I've picked it up in quantity and I'll, I'm going to keep cycling back to Kozilek in this conversation, nobody believed in that card. Nobody believes in Kozilek the Great Distortion. I don't know why. The card is fantastic. It reloads your grip back up to seven and then you can just counter stuff. You play it in the, as a general, you play it in, in the main. It doesn't matter. It's an amazing card overall. Every copy I found between 2 and $3 I bought yeah. Like I didn't have a brick. I have like maybe upwards of 20 because they were actually kind of hard to find out in the wild. I was not buying them off TCG player. I would buy them from cases as I, as I was tra- traveling around that year. Um, that's a card I I believed in and I just wanted as many copies as I could vacuum up before hitting the, the open market. And I have the sky's the limit. I want infinite on that card. Yeah. They have shown a great disdain for reprinting the Eldrazi uh, in a previous form. They'll iterate. Yeah. Um, we also know Kozilek and Ulamog are dead, so seeing a new Kozilek, uh, kind of not in the cards, no pun intended, but we might get the Great Distortion as a reprint somewhere else down the road. My But my margin is already like 750%, almost like 1,000% yeah. or something on my initial buy-in. Uh, to buy a list, not even to the open market, just to buy a list, right? And that's because I knew this card would pop. I knew it would be a slow burn. I knew it would be years down the road. I was fine dedicating the space to it, and I was fine waiting it up and just trying to make as much as I could. This is a card I'm fine maximizing my percentage on. And how does that compare for you? Because, like, I my floor is 20%, yep. but I typically go for 20% on my general stock. Yep. Uh, for specs, I'm fine depending on what it is. Uh, similar to you, the cheaper it is, the higher percentage I want because lower like, yeah, exactly. actual number, you know. Uh, I would have been fine doubling up on Grim Feasts. I just honestly forgot they were in a box and missed one of the price spikes. Mm-hmm. It happens. Uh, but how does that compare to, like, your general stock margin? Do you Is 20% your floor there generally, or...? Uh, so when I stock cases or um, I bring binders out, I price to the lowest... If the card is near mint, I'll price to the lowest LP on TCG player, rounded down to the nearest dollar, and then like take 10% or something else off. Because if it's in my binders or in my backstock, I know I got it for trade, which means I'm already up on the deal. 
and I'm going to be taking cash for that, which means I'm going to be essentially reinvesting it back. So I'm, I'm fine, you know, giving the, um, the, the Facebook discount in person, you know, and, okay. I, and I, so I always have room to, to wiggle. It just makes it, I want, I don't want to put somebody off from buying something from me. So I want to make it as appealing as possible because everybody's seen somebody pull out a phone trading yeah. or out of case, et cetera. And if somebody looks up the card on TCG player and like, oh, it's right here for less, I'll just buy it. That's, I want yeah. that to happen. So I'm fine. I, that, I want to beat the market when I'm casting my net like that. That makes sense. I'm very much like, for me, I'm the same, especially in a case at an event. Mm -hmm. Because look, I, you know, unless it's a high-end foil or something that's like particularly hard to find, but like it's fetch lands. Yep. Sure, I'll give, I'll give you the sick deal price. 10% off, low. Sure, absolutely. Because odds are if that card is ten dollars tcg low i paid six on it mm -hmm. six to seven cash if i paid cash or yep. probably seven trade whatever you want to pay me nine bucks and i make a 50 percent margin if i paid six dollars or you know a 20 to 30 percent margin if i paid seven yep that's fine, that's fine. i have no problem with yep. that and i think that's something that too is you know different from specs because for me you know, it's it's weird. If I have someone that all of a sudden comes up and says, I want a brick of Grim Feast, I'm for some reason I would think I would be less likely to do that on a slow burn. On a pump and dump, there have been times where I went into a show weekend knowing I just bought fat stacks of a card. Yep. That card is spiked this weekend and I'm selling it for sixty percent of what TCG is because I had a bunch of them already and I'm just trying to out them as yep. quick as possible. Whereas with the slow burns, I feel like if someone came up to me and said, hey, I want to give you, you know, your margin on this card, I'd probably be less likely to do it at a booth. You know where my slow, slow burns don't go? Shows. Exactly. Never. Yeah. The only slow burn card I have in any of my stock that I bring with me is for Temporal Trespass because we have uh, Narset Enlightened Master players up here. Yeah. The, the original Narset, the creature, you know, that a lot it's just taking turns dot deck in, in edh yeah. so you need that card so i was like yeah. all right i'll throw four in the binder and they still haven't moved from the binder nobody's been interested but that's the only piece of slow burn that i've done that with i don't it's not like i don't want to expose it i feel kind of similarly it's just like they're my specs i don't think people are really going to care and if they did I don't feel bad about selling them or trading them to somebody. It just seems like I'm breaking up the system that I have dedicated to yeah. specking. I have an area for those cards. Everything's labeled. It's all documented as well. So I have to change my numbers around and like re and adjust uh, my personal documentation for it. And it's like more of a hassle than anything else. Yeah. Like so, I, I definitely understand that. But one of the things I did want to ask about is like. I, I'm not a lazy individual. I just don't like the franticness of, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the pump and dump the FOMO stuff. You know, what was that kind of, like, was there a signpost for you that said, like, hey, this is a better model for me than, than a slow burn? I, I think the big thing is that on the FOMO stuff, it's a lot easier to coordinate buyouts. It's yep. a lot easier to work with people to move mass quantity of something. Uh, prime example was Hatred. You know, when that first spike hit and it went from 5 to 20, mm -hmm. I think using, you know, the people from the Cabal Discord, you know, we went from, like, 
I don't know, I ended up with over 500 copies of that card just from arbitrage on MKM. And being able to pull that together and say, all right, so, you know, and this this is an interesting example because this was something where we hit MKM first yep. because yep. the European market was way less reactionary to that stuff. And once I got the tracking for the ones from Europe, I'm like, great, now let's hit TCG player because we have all these cards coming in all of a sudden from Europe that by the time they get here, we'll have set a new price on this reserve light, reserveless blue chip. And it, it's easier because it's more work, but it's also less because I don't have to dedicate as much finance to it as I would if I was just slow burning enough copies of Hatred myself to move the price. Yeah, And I think that's one of the draws for me is the fact that it's easy to just coordinate like, hey guys, we're going to hit XYZ card. Yep. Yeah. And try to get it, especially because typically on stuff like this, it's stuff that's lower supply. You know, you're not going to reset the price on Sarkin's Unsealing by buying out TCG Player because it's almost cost prohibitive because of the shipping on all the individual copies. Exactly, yeah. So it's, you know, it's easier to move because you're moving as a group and it's easier to move because you're moving a smaller quantity typically than you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, what drew you to more, why more of the slow burn for you? Is it is it because, like, look, I can throw it in a box and let the bots do the work, kind of? Uh, yeah, I, I realized as I was playing, uh, I was moving cards into backstock. I was just moving the cards that I traded, like, a bunch of copies of because I figured they would pop in standard or elsewhere and I trade them at the time. So it started as kind of like a collectional, a collection organizational thing. And I started pulling my backstock of those cards. All right. So they rotate out of standard. Nobody wanted them at that point in time. They're not worth anything. I just have to wait. And yeah. so as you know, the, the couple of years, so that was like started back, you know, full time in standard. So it was my primary format. Uh, new f- Phyrexia, somewhere around there. Yeah, I was, I was playing like mm-hmm. Titan and Delver at the same time in Standard. And so it was like all that extra stuff, the Rune Cantors, Pikes, the spells that went with those decks, um, they all just kind of, and the, the lands for Titan, they just kind of went into backstock and started accruing value over time. And I thought, well, I can just kind of do this slowly. I have the space, the time for it. And yeah. Uh, at that point in time, not a lot of specs to check on, so it was like not terribly time-consuming to to determine like what prices were. So I was like, all right, we'll just we'll do it this way. And then as I moved more into like a vendor role here, and I was uh, picking up cards from people for uh, resale, it kind of became akin to uh, long-term storage before I listed on TCG Player. So instead of selling yeah. TCG Player, what I picked it up for at a small margin, something I might not have been happy with at the time. Um, or I knew it was something that was going to be tournament viable. Um, so I'm trying to think of like, kind of where that started. Probably returned to wrap with like the Death Rite Shamans and Shocklands. I was yeah. just picking up extras all the time, extras, extras, extras. And that, that's, that, was a good, that was actually a good one to look at, the Shocklands from Return to Rap. I knew what they were worth from the original Rap, so yeah. obviously they were going to gain traction in time. So just long-term storage in the mall. And so it just kind of happened organically. Um, and it's not like I'm afraid of pump and dump. It's not like it's something I don't want to do. I just yeah. I want to do it when I know I can be quick about it. And 
that my hesitancy about doing it is really the shipping windows because there's you know you have seven days to ship from tcg player and you have x days to ship to a buy list right so if anything is delayed yeah. on tcg player from another vendor you know now you're kind of sol and uh, over time more people have allowed you to drop ship directly to the buy list which is yeah. great and that makes it a whole lot easier but i just need to kind of work past that um one of the things that I do want to mention, and this is kind of a, a neg against the long term or the, the slow burn, is just the amount of space this takes up. Um, you know, a lot of the picks that I have aren't six months ones. They're like the nine to 12 months, right? And even if you're not buying a quantity, you're buying four to eight of each, right? Eventually that adds up. Uh, yeah. I have like two one rows for non bricks and two or four fat packs for bricks. And my stuff just doesn't churn through that space that quickly. So it just keeps accumulating. And it's something that takes a, a lot of, it's taking up more space, which is fine because I have the space. And it's not a loss in terms of finances because the churn is there. I just need to move out of some of the larger things that have matured when I'm ready to. Uh, so that's not a concern. It's just that people might not realize how much you have to dedicate to it from that perspective. There's some more I'll talk about later um, when we talk about uh, our targets a little more in depth. But for you, for FOMO churning and things like that, you know, you've got to dedicate space to your product. Yeah, right? and that's one of the bad things about FOMO churning is sometimes you're dedicating space to a product and you're stuck holding the bag because you can't trigger the FOMO. You can't cause the algorithms to catch in a quantity that makes a difference. So, you know, I was sitting on those Grim Feasts for, what, 2017 was when I started buying them. Yep. I just outed my last ones, like, a month ago. So I was sitting on those for, you know, four years, which, you know, sure, it didn't take up much space, but that was also an example of something on the reserve list. Say I'd done that with, like, Frost Titan. I'd be sitting on those still because that card's not going anywhere because they're just going to reprint it forever. Yeah. And that's one of the worst things about the FOMO is there's times where you literally just can't trigger it. You can't make a pump and dump happen. And it's especially difficult when there's not events. Yep. Because if there's events, like, look, I can out it for what I paid worst case scenario, you know, and or close to it in credit or something. Or I can just trade it on a floor whatever but without events especially you have to be more careful about your pump and dumps because if you can't out it quickly you don't have an out anymore yep because you're most lgs's i would hope at this point are smart enough to know oh this card's spiking on tcg player let me buy into the spike because i'm an lgs no don't no. do that don't buy into the spike sell it do not buy into spikes yep. stop it so and Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to so part of that that you just mentioned, because I don't want to forget it, is so, you know, you sit on, we'll go back to the Frost Titan example, right? You're, you're trying to, to push FOMO on that for whatever reason. You know, this is a standard Circa Zendikar, and people are playing the Teamer deck to combat Cobblade, which involves Frost Titan. You want to trigger yeah. FOMO on that, and it doesn't happen. They reprint the card in the next core set. That drops the price, but nobody plays it anymore. They print it in the next core set, right? Now, FOMO is, is dead and gone. What happens with that card? I, it goes into a bulk box at that point because at this point it's a mythic that I'm going to get a quarter for until the end of time. Yep. And all right, am I going to you know 
get a quarter for it or will I throw it in a booth for like a dollar or something? Sure. It's one of those things that ends up in your your bulk boxes. Yep. You know, that you color coordinate by sleeve for cost and everything, and that's just how you do it. Yep. You know, I and that's, that's where it ends up. That's every copy of Frost Titan that is in foil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That same thing. I'll go back to Shape and New, right? I bought in a Shape and New as it was like starting to see a little more play in EDH and it was gaining traction. I wasn't quite able to get out of Bylas, it still would have been a neg. Um and then we got Madcap Experiment. Then I was left holding the bag. Nobody buys Shape Anew. It drops to five cents. It's a bigger neg at that point. And yeah, just straight into the bulk box. So I, I think it's good to know that no matter which way you're doing this, you're it's, the bulk box is the quote unquote. Yeah, the circular yeah. file of magic is your bulk box. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, there's depending on your attitude, there's a shop here that I help out, and I'll just throw them a bunch of cards like that and say, hey, you know, make a, like, starter box for some kid yeah, out yeah. of this stuff just to get them started. An instant or collection or whatever, yeah. Yeah, that kind of because stuff. that's, again, you know, circular file holder. Yep, it's it's the bulk box. Yep. It's it's your ogre box. Yeah. Give me a quarter for these cards. Yeah. All oh, right. One of the unsung benefits of doing the slow burn is when I'm ready to exit, I send one package, generally. Maybe two to yeah. different buy-lists. Uh, when you're moving stuff out, how much time do you usually spend? So Grimfeast, obviously, you were in deep four, right? So that's yeah. a number of packages depending on who's buying what. Yeah, I. So this is the thing. I try not to sell cards for less than ten dollars. Yep. Because I don't think it's worth my time to package, ship everything else. Because all right, I'm selling a card for ten dollars. Sure. Probably paid six on it. Uh, you got shipping, you got the time to pack, you got the label, the top loader, which at this point are probably worth more by ounce than gold, uh, the team bag, and everything else. So at that point, like, I really don't want to ship it at smaller than a playset when I was outing Grim Feast for 4 to $8, which is why I tend to go the buy list route. Because even if I can't out all of them, I can out 10 to 20 yep. at a time and feel good about that. Now, that said, say it was something like, I don't know, we someone hit Hatred not too long ago, and it went from 50 to 100. Yeah, I'll ship one Hatred for 80 bucks. Yep, yeah. In that case, no problem. But I typically just try not to sell, and that's one of the things with, like, the reserveless penny stocks that I'm so fond of, like Emberwild Caliph. I know that's never going anywhere until it's on a buy list. Yep. Because I'm just not going to sell a playset for $4 and have someone be like, that's ship tracked, right? No, man, it's PWE. And then they're going to add the 3%, and I'm going to have to refund them. But that's another discussion anyways. So follow-up then. For for something like Grim Feast, where you're looking at play sets, because you're going through the open marketplace uh, via Facebook, if you were doing something like TCG Player Direct, when you were ready to get rid of those Grim Feasts, let's say they opened up on the open market, would TCG Player Direct have been uh, not a counter to, but an int- another way to go for, for that? So I... Um, I don't look- like the fee structure on direct is the main thing. That's, okay. On stuff that's not specs, yep. I'm okay with it. On specs, I'm not a big fan because, like, I'm eating into my margin so much more than yes. if I just sick deal it or yep. something or buy list. 
because then I really don't know what my fees are going to be because I may consider it LP, but by the time it gets there, they're like, oh, this card looks flawless. HP, sorry, we're dinging you for it. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more out of your control at that point that especially on things like go deeper on, I'm pretty reticent to involve TCG Direct. Okay. That's been something I've been curious about for a while. It's like if you're just trying to flip stuff, you know, you're FOMO selling, you know... um... Stoneforge Mystic is coming back in Modern, right? So you have, like, Nettlesits, Cauldra Complete, you have Sword of Fire, and nice Sword of War and Peace, right? They're all seeing various shifts uh, circling around archetypes uh, with yeah. Stoneforge Mystic. So if you were just going to be flipping automatically, going back to the TCG player for a smaller percentage overall, instead of taking, you know, that 20% that you're looking for, like, that eats into your margins. And I've been curious how people kind of survived on that specking overall. And yeah. you know, if you've already run the numbers, and I guess it basically comes down to like you can, but you're going to make a pittance on this, you know? Yeah, and that's that's kind of where it's at. Is like, all right, if my if my floor margin is twenty percent, yep. right, and I'm making three cents a card on that, I'm not going to make that on direct, you know? Yep. Yeah. So, um, so when you're when you're looking for specs, you know, the the Urza stuff was pretty neat because it all just kind of fell into the cycle, the the sack art, uh, sack enchantments that you you picked uh you know that seems to kind yeah. of you start with one and the rest kind of fall out from there right but mm-hmm. when you're looking for other specs overall when you're like okay this is something i want to make a run on how much time do you spend you know, looking for stuff like that is it just you know quick glances in the morning when you're checking out you know what you know whatever sources you use or so there's it's not so there's times where it is a quick glance but typically what i'm doing is i'm just like all right well what are and it's kind of like when we talked about what we look for in specs exactly when we were you know a new format gets announced what similar format did this look good in previously yep and if i see something that shows up on stocks and i'm like oh this is interesting because like it's not reserve list or you know whatever the case may be and i start to see this pattern develop i look for okay what's the next wave of the pattern and, you know, when we were talking about Starfoils and Reserve List and we said, you know, there's this whole era of Reserve List that's basically untouched in Mirage and Weatherlight. And then all of a sudden those started going. So it's a little bit of a glance to get an idea. And then once I have the idea, that's when I start diving in deep. Okay. That's when I say, okay, now let's actually look at this and see what we can get into the minutia of, like, where we're going to get our margins. Mm-hmm. So when I saw the era... Of you know the Mirage Weatherlight Visions type stuff, where obviously you know your high end reserve list stuff was already popped. Yep. You know your LEDs were already a bunch, mm-hmm. but you had Ember Wild Caliph, you had Grim Feast, you had Purgatory, you had Bosium Strip, just these things that weren't necessarily like well known or well off. That well, what's going to happen? And I'll touch on this with my pick later. You know we've said this. This stuff is cyclical. So, all right, if this is happening now, has it happened before, and what's similar that can happen in the future, and kind of gauge for that. Okay. So when I, you know, hit on impending disaster first, and then brink of madness and planar collapse, it was exactly that. It was, here's something that's happening. We're seeing these old starfoils spike. What's the next one? Well, obviously, second chance is reserve list. It's the only one for some reason, so that's going to spike. But then we have all these other cards that, like, foil seventh, foil masks that are spiking. Well, where can we spike in Legacy, then? And that's kind of where that came from. Okay. 
And when you do your slow burn picks, is it like, because some of them seem to be more towards EDH. So obviously there's a lot of like EDH rec, checking forums and yep. content and stuff there. When it's for constructed, is it just asking players for you or how does that go? Uh, it's a little bit of both. So right now I'm still trying to figure out what's going on in modern. Um, I, huh. I did pick up a, a bunch of stuff uh, last Friday after the bricks went up on TCG player. Um, yeah. I actually have a little thing. You know, like Dermo Taxi and some other odds. Like there's, you make a good point that a lot of it's EDH and, you know, it's constructed vital stuff. Dermo Taxi's in here for EDH. I went the deepest on. Uh, good old Diamond Lion. Metal Cyst is a spec. Yeah. Obsidian Charma is probably the one I'm highest on because Ponza can crush Tron, and that's the card to kind of do it, and then Tide Shapers. So aside from literally Dermo Taxi in the stack that I have right here, everything else is constructed viable, and I think it's because these were... I consider these all Tier 2 specs, and it was based on my understanding of modern overall uh, and the power of some of the original cards in this, you know, like Diamond Lion, right? Yeah. Nettle Cyst I'd seen in lists already in both Affinity and Hardened Scales and uh, Protoss Stoneforge Mystic decks before they went for Cauldra Complete. So that's why I went there. Uh, it was also two, under $2, which seemed ridiculous for a card that was seeing kind of like ubiquitous play for a couple of days when uh, Artifact decks ran it. Um, and Charma is an absolute hedge that decks like Jund and Ponzo will come back. What I'm doing right now is I'm trying to figure out where the format's going. Is it going to be worthwhile specking on... Um, Priest of the Felrites, a card that I was kind of medium on before. Um, in the long run, possibly, but I need people who actually pay attention to the format to tell me what's going on. Uh, MTG Dex gives you a selector now for the last week and the last two weeks, which is extremely important right now with Modern Horizons 2. So yeah. setting it to the last week gives me basically a, a fairly decent look at a settled modern format. Two weeks gives me a lot of fluctuation. And that's kind of what I will uh, do there. I'll use for constructed. So step one, uh, like I said, I'll check with players, people who are actually paying attention to the format and looking at the deck dumps. And then, you know, what's going on? Like, what are they seeing trend-wise? Um, and what's coming up? Then I will hit MTG decks and MTG meta to kind of get an idea of, okay, these are the decks that are being played in the highest percentages. What's an aggregate deck, deck list look like? And I'll go back and forth and I'll choose from the my specs from the aggregate list i don't like one ofs i think it's ridiculous except for in the case of clothis um, the green yeah. red god from theros because, card is insane yeah it exactly I, I watched that card win so many games of constructed that i just couldn't not pick that up for people who play ponza you know and uh i, I try and look for ubiquitous four ofs in the main that's what i want i want main deck cards not sideboard Diamond Lion, Charma, uh, both going to be main deck cards if they go into their kind of respective archetypes. And the same for uh, some of my, the handful of legacy specs that I've made or cards that I want to watch. I picked up a bunch of Divining Witches uh, very early into the hype train after talking with uh, a bunch of legacy players, getting information from them and looking at deck lists. Similarly, jeez, um, when people... When Jarvis Yu rebuilt Food Chain to be a teamer deck using yeah. the Dominaria Squee as the exile card, you know, I brought that up in Discord as well. So it's 
it's just paying attention to what's going on, some of the high-profile names in this space, and then taking a temperature of the format myself with MTG Dex and MTG Meta. That's kind of how I get to my constructed um, level specs. I will say the majority of the time, though, they just kind of crap out. I was looking back to patch up some stuff on the, the spreadsheet, and a number of my constructed picks just kind of fell by the wayside over the first like year and change. So I think my method at that point in time was kind of whack. I think it's better now, but it's also part of the reason why in the last year, I really like EDH specs over EDH, standard yeah. specs. It's very easy for me to miss a target on standard and modern because the, those formats shift so often. And unless it's something like Divining Wish, uh, Witch or Squee, which were cheap cards for an already established formats, format with players of those decks dedicated to them already with possible EDH overlap, I didn't want to really move on to anything for... Uh, legacy overall. Uh, I mean, and I, I, you know, for the most part, I, looking back, you weren't really making uh, constructed level calls outside of the uh, time vault pick a couple of years ago, based on the NOS rule change. Um, so I guess there was one last question I did want to ask, but I honestly forgot what it was because it was off the cuff in my list. Um, oh, I guess this is a good one. So. Something on the RL starts to pop, or RL parallel, something that seems uh, has a low print run, probably not likely to be reprinted, and you know people looking on on Facebook, you know, just start posting. Let's say with the Grim Fee spike, if you if you were not ready to sell to buy list yet, or make your own posts on Facebook, but you see a bunch of those go by, are you ready to at that point either immediately try and fulfill requests or make your own post saying, "Hey, selling." If someone posts like an in search of post and they're like, hey, I need, you know, four Grim Feasts or whatever, uh, I may consider it. Okay. And I will typically only consider it after I've covered cost basis on the lot. So, like these planar collapses, for example, I've still got, uh, I think, like five or six left, including a Japanese one. Um, at this point, if someone posts an in search of yep. and they're like, you know, hey, I'm looking to buy these for 36 at this point it's pure gravy yep you know i i've covered my cost basis and made money on a few more so like honestly if you know what of my locals or someone wanted one for battle box i just be like yeah 20 bucks it's yours you know i once once i've covered cost basis i'm a lot more likely on a pump and dump especially to be like i'll just out it for whatever i can because yep. like okay. worst case i've broken even now yeah everything else is just all aboard the gravy train so let's just Chill and see what we can get. Yep. Kind of deal. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So something I was wondering about last night when I was... Because I've seen those posts go up before. Like, something starts to spike, obviously, external to Facebook. And then you see those posts of people trying to, like, get in a little too low. And then a model step and, like, hey, you got to... Those are rookie yeah. numbers. Yeah. got to pump those up, right? <laughs> um, like, I, I have, like, one last thing I wanted to mention as a neg for uh, long-term... Uh, holds, but before I do that, is there anything else that you were curious about, like something I didn't touch on by chance, that you wanted to know? No, I, the constructed EDH thing was my biggest one, so yeah. I wanted to save that one for last, because I think that's you yeah. know, especially with the long burns, when you have a format like a standard that rotates, yep. that factors into your slow burn, especially with rotation changing every 18 months. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, but what the neg that I wanted to bring up, and really the, the biggest one is... Uh, attached to that so i've got my spec timing down to mondays and fridays monday is basically when ck is done processing the majority of the bias they received over the week and 
things kind of start anew. Um, they do adjust buy lists over the weekend, et cetera, but Monday is like kind of like re-up on things. Uh, so I comb then. When I'm actually looking at the CK hot list for uh, additional specs from what I'm seeing elsewhere, I do that on Friday because that is generally speaking more than enough time for the people who played games of EDH over the weekend or watch content to have bought so many cards from Card Kingdom that they're now on the hot list on Friday. Yeah. So that's where uh, the majority of my time actually sifting through their um, their strand, that is their hot list, is, is spent. And a lot of the tooling okay. that I've written for uh, the, the patrons deal with that. It's basically my methodology kind of wrapped up Make, to make it succinct and easy because this is, these are my time-saving measures for myself. But yeah. choosing these specs, looking at CK's buy, looking at the CK buy price, looking at EDH rec, checking uh, MTG stocks, uh, TCG player, MTG decks, etc., and noting most of these data points when, I'm, when I first start picking a spec takes a lot of time. Um, there have been times where, and I have to review it again when I'm ready to put one up for the cast. I've got to yeah. go through my backlog of specs. If I were to check now, I think I'm backlogged by about six months. I have six months of specs. And the bad part is when I'm um, making picks for the cast, a lot of them fall off because I chose them months ago. And in the interim, they've just gone up so much. I, yeah. I can't choose them for the cast. Um, as foretold, for instance, people bought into that because of the leak surrounding the Cascade cards. I have that card on my list January 25th. At yep. that point in time, CK was buying it for $3.20, TCG market $6.79, and it just sat flat forever. It was never a good pick. I was making other picks yeah. in the interim, and then all of a sudden, it just went, people went off on it, and it felt it kind of falls off the list. Eh, put that in quotes. It's still on my list. I might pick it again. Yeah. If it ever comes back down to reality, I might pick this. So it's a lot of time spent, and I tr when I do this work on Friday, I'm not entering one two cards into this document ck's hot list is not a one and done on the page when you load it the first time that's a portion of the hot list you got to load it again and again and again somewhere between three yeah. and four times and you will actually get their full hot list that's what i've seen over time and to do that and then to check every one of those cards through all those other sources to try and find the drivers which is super important if i can't find the driver then i can't pick this card yeah. I, or or if I do, I have to just leave myself a note for later. And now it becomes part of like a daily search that I do. What's the driver? What's the driver? Find it, find it, find it. And that chews up a ton of time for this because I want to try and be efficient in my specs, meaning that there's going to be margin to make here at some point in time. And I know for myself what quantity I want to pick up if I'm picking it for the cast what my suggestions are going to be for timeline and picks. And then, like I said, have driver information and feasibility for longevity of the spec for organic demand. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important things for people to realize when they are specking on a card, be it pump and dump or otherwise is, you know, where is the demand? Where is the driver for this card? And that's something we harp on constantly. Yeah. And that's, you know, if, if you don't view content, talk to someone who does. Because, you know, if you don't watch tournament results, talk to someone who does. Make sure you're utilizing the resources you have there. Because 
a bad spec is an uneducated spec. I, I don't... You can get lucky still, yeah. but it's still a bad spec if it's uneducated and you don't know why you're specking on the card. You know, it can be so-and-so said I should spec on it. Okay, well, why? Mm-hmm. You know, why? what were their reasonings for why it's a good spec? And yeah. I think that's one of the most important things. Once you start working more and more with speculation is understanding why you like the card you do. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. Uh, that's actually some of the more interesting conversations I have with people when they're like, yo, what about this? And I'm like, okay, well, let's sit down and talk about it. And some of like the more interesting conversations I have is like, yo, what about Kotaki Wars Wages and Spec? Affinity decks are coming up in modern. I'm like, cool, Kotaki Wars Wages a 2-1 for 2. Stony Silence is an enchantment for two that also hoses every artifact deck. Why would you ever pick the creature over the enchantment? What is your yeah. reason for this? Like, I don't know. Looks good. Not good enough for me because there's an alternative. I think it's better. And, and it's better. Yeah. And that card is the reason why nobody plays Kataki anymore. So you really got to like put your weight behind this one if you want to try and defend it. Yeah. Like, I love those conversations and like they're often enlightening on, on both sides and it's the same thing it's like what's the driver why tell me why why is this spec? Yeah. educate me educate me as to why you think this is a good spec and that's kind of a, a rule that we put forth in the mtg finance discord way back in the day it was like if you want to do one of these runs right if you want to convince every one of these reddit members that jumped into this discord to join your buyout or your spec defend your spec you know we you know Nobody wanted to be there just to dunk on somebody over specs. It was just like, okay, everybody's free to have ideas and everybody's free to discuss them. But like, pretend this is your doctoral thesis and defend it. You know, yeah. tell, us, to tell us. us why this is a good idea. Yeah, exactly. And you know, there there were times where we had buyouts that we thought were a good idea, and after discussing it, we were like, yeah, no, you're right. Oh, sorry, bad idea. Yeah, my so bad. There were times uh, where we went yeah. after him. Excavations, right? Saul Devi. <laughs> That was the best bad idea ever. Was that a drunken or was that an actual? That was a, that was a, that was a, one of Lode's drunken buyouts. Yes. Yeah. It, was... If anybody listening to this was part of the MTG Finance subreddit like four or five years ago and wasn't part of that Discord, you missed a number of drunken buyouts that were hilarious. Yeah. Just people too drunk that were like, "Let's buy out a card," and then people are still trying to recover financially from these drunken buyouts. <laughs> It's amazing. Uh, that's pretty great. Um, okay, so before we go into picks, uh, next for you on the, the FOMO stuff, anything? Yeah, so one of the biggest negs, aside from just holding the bag, is that, you know, when it's not reserved list, uh, and this has been something that's been really bad recently, new product is coming out so frequently now that you better hope and pray you get out right away. Because it's, it's not just that the bulk bin is the worst case scenario. It can be something that goes from $20 to bulk overnight because yep. it doesn't get reprinted. They just print something that's way better because everything is so pushed. So one of the things you have to worry about is something that you have, you know, as is the case with most of the pump and dump stuff. You don't really have any control over this. It's up to people in the marketplace is you have to be concerned about Wizards of the Coast and their product releases. Yep. Because they can all of a sudden drop a secret lair that's all five Praetors for $30. And you may have been trying to spike Shaeldred, for example, or Judge Promo Elish Norn. Card's worthless now. Because, you know, in the 
week it took for the copies to get to you from wherever, all of a sudden it's been printed now. So it's something that you touched on earlier is, you know, you better hope and pray that there isn't a delay with shipping or something like that because there is so much more that is just completely out of your control because timing is so much more important in your pump and dumps and your FOMO buyouts because you have a very small margin for error in terms of time and none of that margin of error is in your control. And that's one of the most terrifying parts of it because there's a lot more risk associated with that than there is with some of the, you know, natural organic demand speculation. And there have been plenty of times where, you know, I've caught holding the bag on a card and here we are, Sarkin's unsealing, and it's just not going to happen. And you have to be okay with, you know, prime example, when we hit Pendrel Mists, um, there was a delay for the second shipment coming over from Europe. So when the card initially spiked to, I think it was $30, uh, the copies that I had coming from Europe were the equivalent of $5. Okay. By the time they got here, Pendrel Mists had become a $4 card. All of a sudden, I'm underwater by a dollar on 100 plus copies of this card. And that's not okay because, yep. you know, I, I could have buy listed them for twice what I paid had they gotten there a week earlier. And that's that's the frustrating thing because it happens and there's nothing you can do about it. Got it. Uh, it, it, it makes sense, yeah. Right. Are you good for picks? Let's do it. All right. Uh, I'll go first. Mine's big and swingy. Sweet. All right. So uh, this week I picked uh, Quicksilver Amulet. It is not the cheapest of my picks right now, but it is always on the rise. And I'm looking at the uh, Urza's Legacy uh, version of this. A lower quantity, despite the fact that this has been reprinted in uh, a core set. It still has the original frame compared to all, uh, all other new printings, and the art is just fucking hilarious. It's so, so good. Yeah. Quicksilver Amulet. Uh, this card, I, there's not a lot to say about it, and I'm going to say this once again as I read through my notes. Uh, this is a quote from the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. It's so overt, it's covert. It takes eight mana to put, you know whatever fatty you want through this thing. You just slam jam Emberpool through Quicksilver Amulet. Cool. You know, it, it it's very difficult to express anything more about what this card does than really reading the card. You just pay for, choose a creature card in your hand, and put it on the battlefield. End of sentence. End of review. That's it. That's all this card does, okay? So, like, what, where does this go? This is in Chungus the deck, right? It's not a card for those that want to play the biggest creatures possible to beat their opponents with a stream. Sorry, a card for the players who want to play the biggest creatures possible to beat their opponents with a stream of haymakers. But also for people that want to drop synergistic or powerful creatures early as an alternative in case they don't hit all the ramp. So Crater, Huff, Avenger of Zendikar come to mind for the second strategy. But at the same time, uh, Avenger of Zendikar is also good for you know the other methodology. And I'll, I'll bring up some of the generals because it's kind of interesting. So uh, here's EDH Rec, and you see, like, you know, you've got Mile up the top, which is awesome. You got Karthus Tired of Jun down there, and you see pretty quickly that for like the generals that are playing this card, a lot of them aren't green, so you don't have that ramp. So that's part of the alternative to it. Uh, Mile and some of the other green generals like Karthus do require a lot of ramp because they're playing a lot of large mono value things that aren't creatures, so you can't just shove them through, right? Um, format as far as format information goes, aside from this being like the Aether Vial for Chonky Boys, 
uh, making it possible to play battle cruiser threats. Uh, this is just fatty boom booms on the cheap. It just saves you mana <laughs> over time. It, it's Nalvish yeah. Piper as uh, an artifact. It's just awesome. Uh, timeline for this, it, it's kind of like it. It's really interesting because this is more for people that want to play battle cruiser commander and. The more people that want to do that, the more popular this card becomes. So we looked at the the generals, and you see like it's colorless and blue are up there. And I'm I'm going to discount Volrath, who's up there for the time being, because you have Urborg, you have Cabal Coffers, and you have the one from Corset Cabal whatever, which is Cabal Coffers for only basics, right? You have ways yeah. in mono black to just super ramp. So like that's. It, it's really interesting where this goes and kind of makes the timeline a little wonky. So the last price increase we saw was kind of on an untenable slope, and I'll bring it up again just so we can see. Got to bring this graph back in a little bit, right? And it spikes from uh, 6 to uh, almost $8. And it's the slope that's untenable, not the price. I want to point that out. The slope was untenable, not the price. Uh, but th that increase did reset the floor on all versions of this card, not just Urza's Legacy. So Urza's Legacy pops, they all rise. So I expect as we move into the D&D set, we're going to get some chonky boys, a lot of dragons, yep. and people will continue to move in on this card. So buying in now below $10 should yield results to buy list in about nine months based on my expectation of a much cooler slope but if you were to resell into the open market or trade this, you should see profit much earlier. I think this is definitely a like, great trade fodder. And yeah. in all honesty, that's probably my out. I would buy in now, cook this a little bit, and then bring it back out when we're able to, to, to play in person. Um, so the reprint equity on this uh, is pretty low for standard as Quicksilver Amulet is tied to Dominaria. Quicksilver is a Dominarian thing. So we did see it in Corset in M12, so kind of whatever. Um, we could see this come back in a Mirrodin return set, but I don't even think we'd do that again, not 100%. So this does make sense in a commander deck or a supplemental draft set where they want to just ramp into Chungus, but or Chungai, if that's the plural, Chungus is. But limited not quantity sure. won't really impact the price too much because these cards just get soaked up into the ecosystem we go back to Wreck and we see the generals that are up there. These are fairly popular generals. Now we have a feedback loop. And this yeah. is, I think, a perfectly fine card to actually buy into the idea of the feedback loop on because this is a high-profile card in these decks. It allows you to do big, dumb things because you're just playing big, dumb things. Casuals drive the market, and this fits into that bucket as well as, like, the casual competitive bucket of people that just want to play decks like Karthus. And you have seven lands on board while you can shove, you can ramp with some of them and shove a dragon through a Quicksilver Amulet with the others, right? That's how this plays in those kinds of decks. It allows you to get ahead a little bit. And so I expect this to, like I keep saying, continue up with a different slope. So nine months out is where Vilas the Prophet is. But I think the call out of trade fodder here is really important. Yeah, and I think especially on something like this where it's such a, you know, fatty boom boom Timmy card, your trade fodder is way more important, <coughs> especially, you know, you touched on one of the major themes that I harp on with specs is, you know, they're printing a lot of really good fat dudes. Yep. Like making a habit of it, just 
our fatter dudes are getting better. Our cheaper dudes are getting better. Dudes are just getting better yeah. and better. And as long as that's the design philosophy of Watsi, cards like Quicksilver Amulet stand to gain a lot. Yep. Uh, being able to cheat in a Vorinclex, pretty good. Yes. Yeah. So. Like, just allowing you to save on that mana. That's why I also wanted to make it. It kind of just disappeared into my notes. This is the Aether Vial for Fatty Boom Booms. And the reason Aether mm -hmm. Vial is good is because it nets you somewhere around, like, 10 mana a game by the time the game's over. That's insane for a deck that wants to play creatures that cost, like, 1, 2, and 3. You yeah. know? You're trying to push through this thing, creatures that cost 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. That's going to save you so much mana. And it allows you to get so far ahead that you can generally swing the game pretty quickly, too. Like... I just think this is one of those cards that, for whatever reason, is kind of overlooked a little bit by the community right now that isn't full of casuals. Casuals know about this card. And again, yeah. that's why I think this is better as trade fodder than it is to buy a list, because I think you'll see your gains faster there. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, hold on. Before you go, I do want to note that uh, the card... I mentioned this before the cast. Card Kingdom is buying more now four more now than when i picked this card it's not by much the margin increased by about 20 ish percent but they're buying uh another eight plus from over the weekend so it's selling that's good all right so mine and paying homage to the comment that led us to this wonderful episode uh so stormy used two examples for specs that stormy had used one was the slow burn of divining witch one was the pump and dump of Thought Lash. So I took a look at Thought Lash, and I'm like, you know what? This card's great. It's reserve list, which everybody knows I love. Second, uh, we're on the decline slope of the reserve list spike. Now, one of the most interesting things about Thought Lash when you look at the stocks graph is its stocks graph on the low end is literally the history of reserve list spikes. So you have in March of 2019, the card goes from $2 low to about five and then hits a floor of about three dollars low february 2020 or sorry march 2020 in february it goes from the four dollars to ten and then drops about 20 to 30 percent to a floor of eight dollars we just hit twenty dollars a card on this and we're now on the downslope of a floor of about fifteen dollars so what's happening every year and it moves up a little bit each year every year this card doubles in price at least, and then loses a little bit when it hits a new floor. So now that we're hitting this new floor, this is a time where you can get in on it on the downslope, where you're not going to necessarily... People won't notice the quantity disappearing as much because eyes are starting to move away from this card because it's we're out of the reserve list spike. Now, one of the most interesting things, and I love that TCG did this, so TCG added an update where you can see the latest sales of a card not as a seller, you don't have to be in a seller portal to see it now. It just displays it. So as of today, when we're recording this on 62121, there was an LP copy that sold for $15.75. That is 25 cents less than Card Kingdom is paying cash on this card right now. You are able to immediately arbitrage about 15 copies for cash to credit and profit right now on Card Kingdom. So this touches both the pump and dump because you can immediately arbitrage to a buy list for profit yep. and the slow burn. Because if you just wait, this card's going to hit like $25 to $30 sometime next year probably, if not sooner. Yep. And at that point, even getting it at 15 you're able to profitably buy list 
because you can profitably buy us now on the downswing, which is ludicrous because you're not supposed to do that on the downswing, but here we are. So I think timeline-wise, you're looking at this point, probably about seven to eight months that you would be able to profitably buy list just based on the cyclical nature of the reserve list yeah. and these spikes. Now that's not to say Wizards doesn't print something like Thassa's Oracle or something that is just stupid good with Thought Lash that all of a sudden causes it to spike again. Uh, because you can literally look and at the stocks graph after Ikoria, this card spiked again. Well, turns out Wizards is doing stuff like that. So I'd say get in now, worst case, you're looking at that about nine-month timeline for a turnaround. Uh, it may be sooner based on what we see in the interim between D&D &D and Twilight Sparkle the set. Um, sorry, Twilight, Vampires, and Werewolves. Wrong, wrong Twilight. But I think it's a great buy now at retail because you can make money. And if you can trade for it, because this is the kind of thing that I think people have in their trade binder wanting to trade into the spike yep. right yeah, and yeah. then if it sits there after the spike they're like eh, i need these new fetch lands i'll trade it for a fetch land sure great fine that fetch land is going to be worth the same amount forever thought lash is only going to go up yep. yeah so i'd be fine taking that trade um i think though that it's more likely this is going to be something you're going to have to purchase you're not going to be as able to just go out and scoop them up in trades. Yeah. But it's definitely worth looking at the very least. Yeah, we're, we're past the point in time where weird Alliance and uh, Ice Age cards were in people's binders and just there because they were old and, you know, they happened to stumble upon them somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. Agreed. I, I think the, the only question I have about this card is, you know, what your position would want to be. How deep would you want to go with something like Thought Lash, right? It We had lab maniac beforehand and that didn't budge this card and then we get thassa's oracle and it's like okay now in mono blue you have a very easy and repeatable but then in quotes because there's two options way to just win the game off thought lash it becomes a two card combo um i doubt we're going so, to get a third card but like you said the opportunity exists who knows yeah uh, so i think on this i'd be looking at no more than about 10 to 15 copies probably um, and that's mostly because once you get into the, like, you know, if we're paying 15, 16 bucks a piece on this, at that point I can get a dual land. Yeah. And would I rather have a dual or would I rather have a stack of this spec? I'd probably rather have the dual. Okay. Uh, so yeah, but between 10 to 15 is as deep as I'd want to go. I don't know that I'd want to go to like a hundred plus copies at this price point. Absolutely would have gone at a hundred plus copies when it was $5. Yeah. Yeah. But once we're at the 10 to 15 point, that's kind of the break for where I'm willing to go super deep all in on something okay. like this. That makes sense. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I, th I think it's solid. It's like, it's still an attainable reserve list card. It's a two card combo, like I mentioned, that makes it pretty appealable. Or sorry, appeal pretty appealing to casual players, you know, EDH players, you know, et cetera. And overall, a, you know, a fair pick to just squirrel away if you've got a reserve list box. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, anything else for this week? No, I think that's it. All right, awesome. So that is going to be it for this week. We will be back next week. Uh, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube. If you would like to listen to the podcast instead of watch the video, you can find that on Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. If you want to.